Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 58 called The Italian Job. In the last episode, we heard about the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451. Attila was outwitted by Aetius, who persuaded Theodoric, king of the Visigoths, to join the Romans at the last minute. Theodoric was killed in the battle, but Attila was beaten, the first defeat inflicted on the Huns since they'd appeared out of the Asian steppes in the 4th century. So, let's rejoin our narrative with Attila back on the Hungarian plains. According to one source, he was, quote, furious about the unexpected disaster he'd suffered in Gaul, end quote. But he had little time to contemplate his revenge on Aetius and Torismund, Theodoric's son, for no sooner was he back in his finely carved wooden palace, so well described by Priscus, where he scorned ostentation and drank from his trusty wooden cup, than a visitor came knocking. This was an ambassador from the Eastern Empire, Apollonius, a general who was said to be one of the bravest men in the Roman army. And he needed to be brave, for he brought Attila bad news. Constantinople had no intention of paying the gold tribute to the great Hun. It hadn't been paid since Theodosius II died in July 450, and a hard-line military government led by the new Emperor Marcion had replaced the weak Theodosian dynasty. Marcion was determined not to kowtow to the Huns. His first embassy to Attila clarified that the most the Hun could expect was the occasional gift from the emperor, and that was conditional on his good behaviour. If he wanted anything more, it would be war. Now Apollonius repeated the message. No doubt he carried the customary gifts of silks, spices, pearls and gold, but his communication was that the tribute wouldn't be paid. At first Attila refused to see him. Priscus records he told Attila that if Quote, the Huns welcomed him as an ambassador, then what he'd brought would be given to them as gifts, but if they killed him, then what he brought would be taken from them as spoils. End quote. Meaning the Eastern army would come to defeat the Huns and recover the gifts as plunder. This was bold indeed. Priscus doesn't tell us what Attila said in reply, but thankfully for Apollonius, he wasn't impaled for his impudence and the general returned unharmed to Constantinople. Apart from this embassy, we don't know what Attila did over the winter of 451 to 452. He must have been worried about his heterogeneous empire fragmenting as the German tribes eyed their western cousins' triumph over the Huns. Did they dream of their freedom? If they did, they were still too afraid of Attila to do anything about it. But he must have been aware that he needed a show of strength to maintain his authority, and it's possible he led an attack across the Danube to punish the Eastern Romans for their impudence. Our one source suggests that this is contained in the official minutes of a conference of 500 bishops from across the Eastern Empire held at Chalcedon on the opposite bank of the Bosphorus from Constantinople in the summer of 452. 
These minutes say the conference was delayed until October because the emperor was required to take command of troops along the Danube. We have no more details. There is no mention of a battle. We would surely have heard had there been a large engagement, and if there had been a Roman victory, then the bishops would certainly have given thanks to God. But the silence suggests whatever military action took place was inconclusive, and we have to conclude that Attila made no major move against the Eastern Empire. And this was probably because he was caught between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. In the west, he faced the Visigoths. In the east was Marcion's revitalised army. Attila needed an easy victory, something to show his German subject he was still the boss, something that would allow him to reward them with the gold trinkets that he himself so despised. His gaze moved south towards Italy. One major attraction was its proximity. It was closer to the Hun encampment on the Hungarian plains than Gaul. Admittedly, it was protected by the Alps, but it could still be approached from the southeast, and there were no Visigoths in Italy. Marcion's army was also too far away to rush to the defence of the Eternal City. Of course, there was still Aetius to contend with, but did he really care about Italy? Gaul was his personal fiefdom, and he was untested in defending Italy, which was home principally to the ineffective Emperor Valentinian and his wayward sister Honoria. To use Winston Churchill's phrase, Italy must have seemed like the soft underbelly of Europe to Attila. It was time for the Italian job. In the summer of 452, a Hun army made a lightning march from Hungary across Slovenia and into Italy. We have no details about this army, but it was almost certainly smaller than the host that marched on Gaul the year before. It may also have had a higher proportion of Huns and fewer Germans. Yet it was still a powerful force, and its first target was the well-defended city of Aquileia at the top of the Adriatic. This was large and prosperous, famous for its glass production, and containing massive walls attached to a long-established legionary fortress. Attila's army laid siege to it, but unlike his success in taking Nysus south of the Danube and Metz and Reims west of the Rhine, they couldn't break through its stout defences. Perhaps Italy was not the soft underbelly of Europe. According to Giordani's, Attila was considering bypassing the city when he spotted an omen that it was about to fall. Quote, Attila chanced to be walking around the walls, considering whether to break camp or delay longer, when he noticed that white birds, namely storks who build their nests in the gables of houses, were bearing their young from the city, and, contrary to their custom, were carrying them out into the country. 
Being a shrewd observer of events, he understood this and said to his soldiers, You see the birds foresee the future. They're leaving the city sure to perish and are forsaking strongholds doomed to fall by reason of imminent peril. End quote. Trusting to his superstition, the Huns made one last furious attack, and, quote, bringing to bear all manner of engines of war, they quickly forced their way into the city, end quote. The storks were proven right, and Jordanes says that Aquilaire was subjected to a sack so brutal that scarcely a trace of the city could be seen afterwards. Tradition has it that a small group of survivors fled by boat and struggled ashore 60 miles away in a sheltered lagoon. There they stayed and founded a community that came to be called Venice. While Giordanes says that Aquilea was utterly destroyed, in fact, a wonderful set of mosaics was preserved in its main basilica under a protective layer of ash, which can still be seen today. Centuries later, they were uncovered and used as the floor for first a church and then the modern cathedral. But this was of little consolation to the Romans of the time. The destruction wrought in Aquileia struck fear into the hearts of every Roman in Italy. The inhabitants of many of the prosperous northern Italian towns seemed to have fled before the Huns. As Attila marched west into the Po Valley, he found them deserted and their gates open, with their inhabitants cowering in the surrounding woods and countryside. Almost no details of this part of his campaign have survived, but it seems likely that he occupied the principal cities spread out along the River Po, including Concordia, Altinum, Patavium and Verona. Aetius appears to have done little to stop him. The Roman army failed to defend Italy yet again, just as it had failed to defend it 50 years before, from Alaric. This reflected the impoverished condition of the Western army. The Visigoths had won the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. Without them, Italy stood defenceless. According to one chronicler, Prosper of Aquitaine, this didn't trouble Aetius much since he regarded Gaul as his personal fiefdom and even recommended Valentinian to retreat from Italy back to Gaul. But Valentinian wasn't taking advice from Aetius. Having spent his life in his shadow, the ineffective emperor was becoming rebellious. He packed his bags and fled from Ravenna to Rome. There he joined Leo, the Bishop of Rome, and prayed to God for deliverance from Attila's wrath. Meanwhile, Attila reached the gates of Milan, the erstwhile capital of the Western Empire, and although very few of its great Roman buildings have survived to this day, unlike those in its rival Ravenna, at this time it boasted an imposing imperial palace, a hippodrome, a monumental bath complex, and grand colonnades along its wide streets. 
There was no great battle outside its walls, and we're not even sure if the city was besieged or whether its fleeing inhabitants voluntarily surrendered it. According to Maximus, a 5th century bishop of Turin, it was violently sacked in the fashion so familiar to the Huns. Quote, what once seemed to be ours was despoiled by looting or was destroyed by the sword and consumed by fire. End quote. What really happened to Milan, we'll never know, but our only other source on the city's plight mentions an episode that sounds authentic. As Attila strode down the long hallways of the empty imperial palace, quote, he saw a painting of Roman emperors sitting on golden thrones and Huns lying dead at their feet. So he sought out an artist and ordered him to paint Attila upon a throne, and the Roman emperors with sacks on their shoulders, pouring out gold at his feet. End quote. There the Huns stopped. Aside from an expedition to sack the town of Ticinum close to Milan, Attila was happy to watch the paint dry on his new and more accurate picture. He didn't give the order to march south and sack Rome. Why has never been entirely clear. Priscus says that the Huns were superstitious about sacking Rome because Alaric had died so soon after his sack of the city in 410. But the most famous story of all, and one which has become firmly enshrined in the canons of the Catholic Church, involves the Bishop of Rome, Leo, who travelled to Attila's camp near Mantua with two prominent companions. Trigetius, a former prefect of the city of Rome, who'd earlier negotiated a peace settlement with Geyseric, the Vandal king, and a former consul, Avienus, one of the most prominent senators in the city. Attila had demanded Honoria should be handed over, along with her dowry of half the Western Empire. Instead, he got Leo. The Emperor Valentinian was conspicuously absent from these proceedings. It was a brave move by Leo, since Attila might have held them all to ransom or simply executed them. The chronicler Prosper of Aquitaine maintains that the Hun leader, quote, was so impressed by the presence of Leo that he ordered the war to be halted, and having promised peace, retired beyond the Danube, end quote. Leo was certainly formidable. He was a Roman aristocrat who didn't fear risking his life in political negotiations. He persecuted heretics like the Manichaeans and resisted Aetius's attempts to impose his authority over the Praetorian prefect of Italy, Albinus. A favourite of Theodosius, who, like Valentinian, feared Aetius's growing power in the West, he was recognised by the Eastern Emperor as the Patriarch of the West, meaning that he was superior to all the other bishops in the Western Empire. This would later translate into the title of Pope. As such, the Catholic Church today remembers him as the first Pope. Attila may well have taken a liking to him. We know from Priscus that, contrary to his reputation, Attila was in fact rather civilised and courteous to his guests, even to Roman envoys. 
Giordanes says that he held brave men in high esteem, such as the German kings Valamir and Arderic, and he also admired Aetius. So it's quite possible that the great Hun took a liking to Leo. But despite that, it's very unlikely that his visit was the real reason Attila retreated, even if, as some historians suspect, although this isn't substantiated in any sources, Leo took gold to bribe Attila. More likely is the account left to us by Hidatius, a contemporary Roman bishop and chronicler from Spain, who says that, quote, They, the Huns, were struck through divine providence by heaven-sent disasters, some with hunger and some with a disease, end quote. The hunger was because Italy was suffering from famine in 452. The previous year, harvests had failed in many parts of Italy and the crops were little better in 452. The Huns had no logistical support whatsoever and entirely depended on living off the land. Food would have been hard to get, even when it was a Hun who was doing the asking. The disease Hidatius mentioned was almost certainly malaria. At this time, and until the 20th century, the northern Italian plains were home to malaria-carrying mosquitoes in summer, which caused many invading armies to falter. A good example was a Frankish invasion in 540, when a third of the army was said to have been killed by malaria. Hidatius also mentions that the Eastern Empire was busily supporting its ailing Western cousin by attacking the Hunnic homeland north of the Danube, as well as sending reinforcements to Aetius, although both the location of these troops and Aetius's actions remain a mystery. For these reasons, and also, no doubt, because of the quantity of plunder that had already been acquired, Attila chose to abandon the campaign and return home. The Italian job had been completed, and it had certainly been more successful than the invasion of Gaul. But had it been successful enough for Attila to maintain his authority? For the truth was that he had failed in all his major campaigns. First, he failed to take Constantinople. Second, he failed to conquer Gaul. And third, he had failed to take Rome. For such a legendary warlord, known as the conqueror of the world and the scourge of God, if someone had been required to do his appraisal, he certainly wouldn't have got exceeds expectations. For example, compared with Alaric, his accomplishments were disappointing. Back on the Hungarian plain, Giordanes describes Attila's irritation at returning home. Quote, so Attila returned to his own country, seeming to regret the peace and to be vexed at the cessation of war. End quote. Clearly, the next step for Attila was to deal with Constantinople. Marcion wasn't paying the tribute. Attila sent an embassy, quote, threatening to devastate the provinces because that which had been promised him by Theodosius was in no way delivered and saying that he would show himself more cruel to his foes than ever, end quote. So it seems Attila was gearing up for round three with Constantinople. 
But the showdown between Attila and Marcion never took place. According to Giordani's, one night early that year, the emperor was having a fitful night's sleep. He was worrying about the impending battle with Attila. He awoke suddenly from a troubled dream. An angel had appeared beside his bed. The heavenly messenger had shown him a hunnic bow that was broken. Marcion wasn't sure what this signified. Two days later, messengers arrived from the army in Thrace. Attila was dead. Throughout the eastern and western empires, church bells rang out and people celebrated in the streets. The scourge of God was no more. Rome was free of its greatest enemy. But the Huns still had a part to play in the final downfall of Rome's Western Empire, for in the years ahead, as Attila's empire crumbled, it would send shockwaves across the world. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And if you want to hear more about the Romans, please sign up to my mailing list at nickholmesauthor.com. Just click on the link in the podcast app you're listening to right now. And in the next episode, which will be in two weeks' time, on the 22nd of April, since I'm away travelling to Ravenna for some research, we'll hear how Attila died and what this momentous news meant for the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>